All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Welcome to Chinese Church in Christ South Valley. Um, if you're just joining us, we've been doing a sermon series where we've been talking about the triune God, God being God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how each of the three beings of the Trinity, well, we've only covered one so far, but uh, today we're going to get into the second one. So um, I wanted to start today by um, sharing a truth that I think adults in this room know, and if you are a youth, you may not know this yet, but I think this is a true statement that will help you later on in life, but it is very true, I think, and I think many other people think as well, that who you know matters much more than what you know. Who you know matters much more than what you know. So let me, um, let me share a couple stories about that. So uh, as a, um, a semi-new college graduate who was unemployed for a little while looking for a job, um, I went to great lengths to make a very nice-looking resume to apply for jobs. I became an expert at many of the different online kind of job searching platforms you might find. And I thought, you know, I have a college degree from a, what most people would say is a pretty good school. And I have a decent GPA. It didn't start off that way, but it eventually got better. And I have all these qualifications I could put down. So I thought these are all of my qualifications that will help me get a job. And I would send resumes out for a while and hear nothing and hear more nothing. Or maybe I might hear a little bit, but it was a job that I wasn't like that like excited about. And then one day I was at church and I was talking to a guy who was relatively new to our church. And he said, what are you up to these days? I was like, oh, I'm just looking for a job. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I need another employee. Why don't you come work for me? So several months of just like, you know, trying to use all of my expertise and all of my qualifications to find a job mattered not at all when I got to church and my friend who barely knew me at the time, he might have regretted later hiring me when he saw I wasn't exactly fit for what kind of work we were doing at a blueprint company. But anyway, in that moment, knowing him personally was what got me the job. It had nothing to do with my qualifications or anything like that. And so at that moment, Knowing him was way more important than all of my education and training. And in order to find things in this earthly world, many times people will say, if you know someone who can help you get what you want, that's actually better than anything else. So all of you who are studying for great college educations, don't be dismayed. It may still help you to some degree, but I'm also sharing this truth that I think is uh, very important for us. And I'll say more about that, why I'm talking about it in a moment. Um, another fun example of this, as many of you know, one of my hobbies is playing golf. Um, golf is not a game for, most of you are like, Dan, don't talk about this. Golf is boring. Like, that's something our parents do. Like, why are you talking about this? But I promise this has a point. But in any case, I was playing golf one time at Santa Teresa Golf Course, which is over here, and I got paired up with a kid from Valley Christian who was a very good golfer, much better golfer than I will ever be. And he saw the golf towel on my bag, which is a golf towel from a course that they actually use on the PGA Tour, the professional tour. Now, I had never been there but it was a towel that was left over from my grandma because my grandma was an even more hardcore golfer when she was younger, and she gave me that towel. And when he saw that golf was something I enjoyed and that I was decent, I wasn't as good as him, we, he introduced a game that um, many golfers will play on the course, which is have you played and then fill in the blank and you start naming like as many prestigious places as you can. 
I've shared this in sermons before, but most of you weren't here before, so I'll talk about it again. Just, but when he started this conversation, I was like, oh, this poor kid. He has no idea what he's in for. Because as he would start to list all these famous courses, some that have been used for US Opens and whatnot, he found that I have played many of those golf courses. Now, if you look at me, I'm a pastor. I cannot afford to play expensive golf courses. But the way I can do it is because I have family that has the means to do that. Or I have a friend from my church down in LA who would many times like pay for me because he wanted me to go with him. And in those moments, it was all about who I knew because there's nothing about like me or my bank account or my skill level that had, would have me having anything to do with those famous prestigious places. And so if it's true that who we know is more important than what we know, when we talk about what it means to know the living God, we should ask ourselves, what does it actually, how does it actually benefit us that we know the living God? And specifically today, as we've been looking at the Trinity, as we've been talking about God the Father over the last couple weeks, today we are going to switch and talk about Jesus, God's Son, the second member of the Trinity. Next week, we will switch to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And uh, our good friend of our church who grew up here, Edwin Lynn, Daniel's brother-in-law, he'll be coming to share about the Holy Spirit next Sunday. So uh, for those of you who are at Youth Retreat, he was a great speaker for us this summer. So he'll be here to share God's word with us and particularly about the Holy Spirit. And I find his insight into uh, the Holy Spirit very, very deep and very um, just well thought out. So I'm excited to hear from him next week. But today we want to ask ourselves the question, what does it actually mean for us, moment by moment, day by day, that we know Jesus, the Son? If who we know matters in the same way that it has had great benefits for me in my earthly life, when it comes to knowing the living God, what does it actually mean to know Jesus, the Son? And so that's a, really, um, I, that's a really important truth that I'm really excited to unpack with us today. And so the way we're going to do this is we're going to hang out primarily in the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to look at several verses, but we're going to jump around and see several verses in the book of Romans that helps us learn three things about Jesus that'll be up here on the screen. Um, before we do that, I think I have something else. Oh, we should do some review. Yes. So what have we done over the last couple weeks? We have seen... Uh, When we started this series, we said our world has a way of communicating many lies or hurtful statements with us that make us feel shame, that make us feel inadequate, that make us feel discouraged. And that is why it is so important to know the truth. And Daniel shared with us in the book of Genesis 3, the original sin, when the serpent deceives Adam and Eve, it shows us there are many voices that want to lead us astray, that want to lead us into dark places that exist in our world. And that's why it is so important that we know the truth and we know who God really is. And many times we talk about God being the triune God or we talk about the Trinity, that there's God the Father, there's Jesus the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. If these are important parts of the Christian understanding, then we should have a deeper kind of grasp of what each of these three beings does for us. And so um, we saw how two weeks ago, when we read the story of the prodigal son, we saw how God the Father is depicted in that story, that parable that Jesus tells, 
where the son goes, spends a third of his father's money, basically wishes his father is dead, goes out, parties, squanders it all, and comes home thinking, maybe my father will like, let me work off my debt. And the father is overjoyed to see him because it is his son, right? And we see that is the heart of who God is, God the father is. And then last week, Daniel shared with us, and it was really great because he could give us an insight of what it's like from a father's perspective of a young son of wanting to give good gifts, as Luke talks about in Luke chapter 11, to his son. And we see that from that, God the Father really wants what's best for, for us. So we've spent two weeks thinking about who God is as a father, and today we're going to look at who Jesus is as the son. So if we're going to be primarily in Romans 8 today, I want to start with the first verse, which I think helps kind of wrap up where we've been so far in our series about the Trinity. And it says this, Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. We'll say more about his life and his circumstances for writing um, what he does. But this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's a great picture of what we've seen in the story of the prodigal son. And last week, as Daniel was talking about how we can pray to God because God is a father who wants to answer our prayers This is a great starting point for the chapter we're going to be in to see who God is. But we're also going to learn from this chapter about who Jesus, the Son of God, is and what he's doing for us right now at this moment. Many times we think what Jesus has done is on the cross and that's finished, and it is, but it still has great effect in our lives today. And so we're going to see three things in the book of Romans, primarily in chapter 8, but we'll jump around a little bit. But really, when we think about Jesus, the Son of God, I just want us to answer three questions today. These are the three things we're going to talk about. We're going to ask ourselves, where is Jesus right now? Like, we talk about Jesus, what he's done for us on the cross, but right now, on November 12th, 2023, where is Jesus? And if we know that, then what is he doing? And then finally, how do these two things help affect our lives today in knowing Jesus, the Son of God? So let's get into that this morning. Where is Jesus right now? Um, We're going to skip several, several, several verses ahead from Romans 8.1 that we just read. And if we skip down, we should never do this because Romans is like so deep and filled with so much of God's goodness. But for the sake of this message, we're going to skip down to verse 34. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 34. And it is one of many passages in scripture that answers the question, where is Jesus right now? And Paul writes this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So not only does this verse tell us where Jesus is right now, but it also walks us through who Jesus is, that he died, he was raised, he resurrected on the third day as we read about in the Gospels. And where is he now? He is at the right hand of God. So if we're answering that question, where is Jesus, the Son of God, right now, November 12, 2023? Jesus, according to this passage, and many others, if you read the entire book of Hebrews and other passages that Paul has written, that John has written throughout the New Testament, it is understood that at this moment, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And if we're going to say that each of the three members of the Trinity are important 
and have unique and unite, but unique but united roles in our relationship with God, then I think it's important that we know who's doing what and where, like, where they all fit in, even physically, or I guess in this case, like, both physically and metaphysically. But it doesn't just say this here. If you read much of the New Testament, you will see that it is understood that at this moment, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And so what that means is we read about how Jesus, we know, many of us know, that Jesus is most famous for being crucified. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day. And he spent some time in his resurrected form equipping and encouraging his disciples who are about to start the early church in the book of Acts. And then he goes up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And at that point, from now, as best as we can understand from the New Testament and what's been revealed to us through, through God's word, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. That's where Jesus is right now. And so as, if we want to be specific about who Jesus is as the Son of God and what he does for us, then we should be specific about what he's done in his earthly life and what we understand from Scripture about what he's doing right now and where he is right now. And that is at the right hand of God. So that's a very simple answer based on part of this verse, verse 34, and definitely many other parts of the New Testament. And so that should lead us to another question, which is going to take, will take more time to answer, because if we're asking, where is Jesus right now? The New Testament tells us he's sitting at the right hand of God. That should beg the question, well, if he's sitting at the right hand of God, what is he doing right now? Like, can't we see we live in a very broken world, like, where we would hope that God would have some just effect on our world and, and interjecting and all the chaos and all the, the violence and the brokenness that we often see in our world? If Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, how is that good for us as his people at this time? And so that's going to be our second question. If Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, what is he doing right now? And we'll get into why that's good for us. But let's go back to this verse then, Romans 8, 34. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? Who indeed is interceding for us? So we're told pretty clearly where Jesus is right now and what he's doing. And Paul writes that he is interceding for us. Now the word intercede or intercession is a big word that we might not always understand. And so some of our best guesses might be, might be like when we intercede for someone, we pray on their behalf. We're asking God to do something in their life to benefit them. That's one way we would understand the word intercede. When the Apostle Paul uses this word for intercede, there is in the same, um, using the same word, but a slightly different translation of that word in a different part of Romans, it is not translated intercede, it is translated as he is pleading with God. And so using the same framework of the word that Paul wrote, like in the original language, commentators will say another way of understanding the word intercede, which is what Jesus is doing right now, is he is pleading with God while sitting at the right hand. What is he pleading with God for? Now, if we go back in the book of Romans to understand Paul's train of thought, because if you're really going to understand the book of Romans, you would read the whole 16-chapter, very, very, very dense letter. 
Um, but we would understand some key verses that I think are famous for us if we've grown up going to church, or maybe even if we haven't. But if you go back to chapter 3, there is a very famous verse, which in, um, pay attention, youth group, this might be in future trivia things for you to earn candy and things like that, but if I say, what is the second most famous verse in the Bible, what is usually the answer? Does anyone know? Well, what's the first, what's the first most famous verse? John 3.16, right? We know that one. We got that one down. What's the second most famous verse? This is why I always put it in quizzes. No, no, no. John 11.35, which is Jesus wept for all of you out there, is your guys' favorite, second favorite verse because it's so short. What you got, Ethan? Genesis 1.1 is not a bad guess, but what you got, Andrew? Jeremiah 29.11 is definitely a youth group favorite, but... Okay, what is, our, what is our other pastor doing right now? Goodness gracious, okay. Um, all right, now, you should have a hint because if I said we're in the book of Romans, it would come from the book of Romans, right? So, Zoe, if you could go to the next slide. This is a very famous verse for us, Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I believe, and maybe this is where I'm getting my subjective understanding of what's the most famous and what's the second most famous, I'm usually, I'm usually basing this off of what, how, many, how many signs do you see of these at sports games, right? So usually it's like when people want to go evangelize it at sports games, it's John 3.16. I've seen more Romans 3.23 than anything else, which is an interesting choice if you think about it. But um, I'm, I hesitate to say what you got for us, Aiden. Okay, we could, get into, we could get into personalized algorithms later, okay? That's not, like, that's not what we're doing right now. But in my mind, in my, well, let's put it this way. In my very subjective opinion, I think Romans 3.23 is, is the second most famous verse in the Bible. But whether it's the second most or whether it's the tenth most or whatever, it is an important verse because I think this verse is key to us understanding like the depths of our sin as humans. And I think it's something that our world struggles to grasp right now because we're starting to live in a world where people assume that all of, our, um, all of our ideas and all of our emotions and all of our just like desires come from a good place, which I don't think is true scripturally, but also just like in real life. And so seeing this verse helps us understand the brokenness of humanity to a great degree. But... I think this is also a very famous verse because we read it and we get very serious when we see it because it calls attention to the ways that maybe we have fallen short. And we might feel like, I've fallen short in so many ways. How could God possibly love me if he knows like the worst sins that I've committed or the things that exist in my life when no one is around or when no one's watching, when I'm just on my own or whatever it might, might be. We might look at this in a very somber way. And the important thing about the Bible is to read it in context because as serious as it is to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we often, at sports games, they need to not have just verse 23. They need to have verse 24 up there so we don't take it out of context because if we read it as it holistically is, it says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So in a very famous verse that helps us understand all of what's going on in humanity when we say all have sinned, we see that this is what Jesus does for the sin that exists in our world. So if he is sitting at the right hand of God and he is interceding, 
what is he interceding for? He is interceding on behalf of those of us who want forgiveness from the Father. He is there at the right hand of God. Another way of of saying it is he is like our lawyer. He is like other New Testament passages will use the word mediator or advocate to say Jesus is on our side presenting our case to the Father. Now, the amazing thing about what actually makes us loved and forgiven is not what we've done because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it's based on the amazing grace of who Jesus the Son is. And if we can think of the ways that we fall short, as the verse talks about, and if we are in need of forgiveness, then it has incredible relevance today, November 12th, 2023, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God And he's advocating for us. It's what Jesus continues to do. And so when I think about, um, it's a way where if I'm trying to say, like, later on, I I don't think the end times necessarily work like this, but there's, you know, we can read Revelation and develop our own interpretations. But if, for example, it came time for the world to end, and it's time to decide, like, who's in heaven or not, we can have great comfort in knowing that regardless of how broken and sinful our lives are, if we are there before a perfect and holy God in the end, Jesus is saying, that person, he's with me. Bring him in, right? That's what it means to be a mediator for a perfect and holy God and an advocate for us. Um, I think it's one of my favorite things to do uh, when I go golfing with my dad at a very expensive golf course to walk into the clubhouse you see like all the polo shirts and all the clothing and the things that cost like in the three digits, like well into the three digits, which is just like ridiculous. And it shows how kind of rich and like lavish that kind of culture is. And like I said, I have no business being in there. But when I go into the shop with my dad, I'm not paying for anything, mind you, right? Like I don't, I don't have the ability to do that. But I, the only reason I belong in that pro shop at like these you know, very famous exclusive places that cost lots and lots of money is because I'm with someone else who's paying. And it's like, this person's with me. And I'm like, yes, let's go play this famous golf course. I could come in, I can have a smile on my face knowing the credit card is not coming out of my pocket because someone else is saying, that person is with me. If you know who Jesus is as the son of God, though we all sin, though we all fall short of the glory of God, In front of a perfect and holy God, Jesus is saying, yo, this person is with me. And that's what it means that Jesus is our advocate and our mediator. Now, last week, not last week, two weeks ago, when I was sharing about the prodigal son story, I shared with you all a very, for me, low point in what I would say is my spiritual journey. When I was in high school, if you weren't here two weeks ago, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. But in front of my club hockey team teammates who asked me if I go to church, I didn't want to appear not cool or not to gain their approval or whatever it might be. And I decided to completely deny my faith in front of my teammates because I was worried about what they were going to say. And afterwards, the guilt that weighed on me for saying what I said and denying that Jesus is my savior, even though I do and did believe that, and I had experienced God's love at that point, it weighed on me very heavily. And I shared with you all, that year, youth retreat was shortly after this time. 
And I went to youth retreat with a ton of guilt on my shoulders thinking, how could God, like, how could God possibly even want me here at this retreat? I've just denied who he is to teammates in a chance where maybe I could have shared like his love or his goodness in some way, or at least been honest about my faith in him. Why would he want anything to do with me in this moment? And I went to that retreat in a sense of just shame, at least internally. I had my smile on and, you know, all the fun we're going to have at youth retreat outwardly. But inwardly, it was very nerve-wracking for me because I felt like I don't belong here because of the ways that I know I have fallen short. Now, without Jesus as my mediator saying to God, it's okay, he is with me, then I could not have experienced the depths of God's love that I was able to at that retreat. And I've thought about this many times. If we're honest with ourselves about the sin that can exist in our lives, what gives us the audacity to say that we are believers or to say that we're Christian or to walk into a church when we know there are many ways that we don't follow God's word? I think we're actually really, really good at embracing God's grace subconsciously, maybe way better than we might think. Because that's the amazing grace that we have to rely on because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. It is the thing that lets us come guilt-free, shame-free, saying, I am broken, I am sinful, and yet I am loved. And God views me through the lens of Jesus' grace and forgiveness and wants to have a relationship with me. And that is exactly what we saw on display when the prodigal son returns home And instead of agreeing to the prodigal son's idea that he can work off his debt, the father runs out to him, puts the robe and ring on him, and says, let's throw a party because my son, who has not lost his status in spite of what he's done, has now come home. Having Jesus, the son of God, who died on the cross for our our sins, sitting at the right hand of God and interceding for us, continues to help us experience the forgiveness of Jesus when we fall short, when we have that very broken or toxic conversation with someone in our family where we know we have not treated them in the way that is right. And yet, that doesn't change how God loves us because of what Jesus has done. And so then later on, when we get to the end of Romans chapter 8, what does it say? It says this. It says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if the Apostle Paul is telling us Jesus is at the right hand of God and he is pleading with God on our behalf, That is how we can know we have the assurance that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God. And so if we know where Jesus is, that he's sitting at the right hand of God, and we know what he's doing, that he is pleading for us, that he is interceding for us, well then what effect does that have on our lives today? And that's the third and final point we're going to look at. Now, a common, uh, a common thought process that exists when it comes to this amazing level of grace is something that Paul tackles much earlier. I don't have the verses up there. But many times we might think, if God is this gracious with us, if Jesus is sitting there at the right hand of God, 
His death on the cross is interceding for us over and over and over again. Then can't I just do whatever I want and commit as many sins as I want because Jesus is going to continue to forgive us? And the way that grace works, the, I think the technical answer to that would be yes. But when you see Paul's life and the fact that he's writing this book of Romans, you see that for Paul, Paul is not trying to take advantage of the grace that he has in, this, in Jesus being the Son of God. But much earlier in the book of Romans, Paul says, should we go on sinning so that there can be more grace? And he says, may it never be. And you see this incredible change in Paul's life. And so it kind of counteracts the question of, well, does this just mean we can do whatever we want? Consider the Apostle Paul's life, that he would come to a point in his life where he would then write these famous words as well in Romans chapter 12, which is, I think, what we can kind of, where we can kind of go from a place of knowing that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and interceding for us. If you, um, if you consider the book of Romans, many people think that the first eight chapters is the theology of Romans, and chapters 9 through 11 gets into some interesting um, both end times and also uh, just some interesting kind of di- uh, diversion that's still important to the book of Romans. But when you get to chapter 12, these two verses that we're about to read are probably pretty well known to us because we've preached on them many times because they're, they're, they're famous. But this is... The, what many people will say, this is where we get into the application section of, of Romans. And so if it is true that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, rose on the third day, he's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's pleading with God, he's pleading our case, well then how are we to live? And Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so as a result, if you look at the, the start of verse, of verse 1, the word therefore is very important. Um, If you haven't heard this very cheesy Bible interpretation technique, when you see the word therefore, you should always ask, what is the word therefore, therefore, right? And what that shows us is it's pointing us back to everything in the previous 11 chapters, that there is no now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Therefore, how shall we live then? And Paul says this, we want to present our bodies, our lives, ourselves as a living sacrifice, as holy and acceptable to God. It's the opposite of the idea of, well, if God is so gracious, I'm just going to keep on sinning so that grace can increase. And, you know, maybe on the last day before Jesus comes back, like then I'll just ask for forgiveness and everything will be good. Paul lives a very different life after experiencing the grace of God in his own life to the point where he no longer wants his life to be about himself, but he's writing this deep theological letter to the church at Rome, and many others like it, to different churches in the Mediterranean world, where his life is now about trying to encourage others to know who God is and to see how that uh, will change their lives as well. If we think about Paul's history, because maybe not all of us remember who Paul is as an author, 
prior to meeting the living God on the Damascus Road, as, as is uh, discussed in the book of Acts, Paul was someone who was persecuting and even killing Christians. He was so zealous as a Jewish person that it meant anyone who had this other belief, he would persecute them, sometimes even to the point of death. And yet, as he is on the Damascus Road, God in his mercy and in his divine intervention strikes him blind, and the only thing that Paul can kind of experience is this godlike being who is communicating to him and pointing out what he's doing that is sinful and leading him into a place where he comes to know the living God. There's a complete 180 in his life where he goes from persecuting and killing Christians to then trying to build and encourage and raise up churches in the Mediterranean world to share the good news of God being our creator, our loving heavenly father, and Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and being at the right hand of God and pleading for us and sharing that with others. And that is what Paul starts off the section of application with when we get to Romans chapter 12. And it changed his life in incredible ways. So when I think about the time where, uh, when I was in high school, as I've shared with you all, where I felt so ashamed of the ways that I, in that moment, denied my faith, I, I can honestly, kind of even today, say it is wild to me that God would even... Like, that God would even uh, accept the fact that I am currently serving as a pastor today. And I think if anyone understands both Romans 3.23, but also Romans 3.24, we can say that our lives are incredibly broken and sinful. We all have the skeletons in our closet. We all have the things that we know that we do are not holy and that uh, a, a, sin, a, a sinless and perfect and holy God would be against him in those ways. And yet, because of where Jesus is today and what he's doing, we can have great confidence that God loves us and wants a relationship with us and wants to work, be at work in our lives. And I think that's hugely freeing because hopefully, hopefully, and this is where I would say, I think we are better at embracing God's grace and forgiveness than we might think because when we think about the most broken parts of our lives, like the ways that shame can really take over our lives, it could make us think like, I am not worthy to go to church today. I'm not worthy to be a son or a daughter of, of, of God. How could he love me? And yet the fact that we can be resilient in this way and show up at church time and time again, though our lives are not perfect, though our lives may be broken, it is an incredible understanding of what we're seeing, that Jesus, where, of where Jesus is and what he's doing today, and why that's good news for us. And so in the moments where we fall short, because this is not a sermon where it's like, okay, let's explore the depths of our sin and think about how that's no longer going to be a part of our lives. If we read the book of Romans, we see that as earthly human beings with physical bodies, we will struggle to be godly at times. Now, there's also hope because we are forgiven. And the more we understand who Jesus is and what he's doing, I believe we will not want to take advantage of the grace of God, but rather we will want to live our, our lives in a Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of way, the way that was true for the Apostle Paul. And so that's the good news of knowing who Jesus is, where he is right now, what he's doing, and how that sets us free 
to experience more of God's goodness in our lives. And so if we want a, just a simple understanding of, of Jesus, the Son of God, him being our mediator, our advocate, the one who is pleading our case at the right hand of God, is such good news for us today that it covers the deepest of our past sins, that it covers what is going to go wrong in our lives in the future. And the more that we can confess our sin before him and before one another, we see that we are just not perfect as human beings, and yet, because of where Jesus is and what he's doing, we are forgiven today. I want to end by giving us a chance just to reflect on this amazing truth. Um, so before we, before we sing our last song, can we all take a moment where we bow our heads? And I want to ask us a question to think about for just a little bit. But if we could all close our eyes and bow our heads. If we think about the reality that we have all sinned, that we've fallen short. If we think about the angry conversation that we've had with someone where we know we have said something that is wrong. If we think about the ways where we know our lives have been self-centered and uh, self-glorifying rather than seeking what God would want or where God is leading. If we can think about those things just for a moment, not because we want to dwell on them, not because we want them to bring uh, just a great level of shame in our lives, can we take a moment and thank God that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God pleading our case and saying, this person, this man, this woman, this boy, this girl, they are mine, they are with me. And can we be grateful for that sacrifice that Jesus has paid for us on the cross? God, we thank you that you, in your incredible grace and mercy, that you would send your son Jesus to this earth. And though he committed no sin, though he was the one and only perfect human that ever lived, that he would be willing to give his life on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, God, which we know are many. And Lord, though our shortcomings in our world often end up with a world saying, we need to be ashamed. How could we? Why weren't we better? God, can we embrace the, just the amazing grace that you constantly show us? And Lord, I pray that, um, God, this would be true for us in our heads, that we would know where your son is right now, what he's doing. And that that is such great news. That we would know that the death that he died on the cross, that, that, he would, that we would know that the death that he died on the cross was died once for all and yet still covers us and forgives us day by day, moment by moment. And so, Lord, when we consider the sins that we've committed, maybe in the past 24 hours or in the last week or even here on this Sunday, Lord, I pray that in our hearts, we would also know of how great 
and deep your love is for us. That Jesus, the Son of God, is interceding for us over and over and over again. And Lord, in the moments where we may fall short tomorrow or the next day, God, Lord, that we can with confidence offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you. Not because of what we've done, but because of what your son Jesus has done and what he is still doing for us at the right hand of God. As we sing this last song, uh, Lord, I pray, God, that you would be just lifting any guilty conscience that we have. And God, that we could embrace the truth of the Son of God pleading our case right now at this moment and that we could be thankful for that. And Lord, we thank you that we could gather together like this on this morning and understand these truths and also to sing your praises for who you are and what you've done and how deep your love for us runs. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.